Massachusetts, where workers stand in front of the looms for 64 hours a week and earn under $6. When the meal gave out short pay, the workers went on strike. We must support them! It was winter in New York as the snow began to fall and the workmen's hall had not a seat to spare. When a young man ducked inside just to warm himself was all the night that Goldman spoke at Union Square. Yes, this is the land of opportunity, but opportunity for men like Mr. J.P. Morgan. She was speaking loud and fast through a haze of noise and heat and the smell of sweat and anger in the air. The police were standing by, but the crowd was on its feet. The night that Goldman spoke at Union Square. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, September 6th, 2020. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia, Michael Portantier, and Jan Simpson. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning, Michael. You are holding down the uh, Broadway Radio uh, Jersey Shore house. <laughs> the Jersey yes. Shore house, uh, not in your normal uh, Manhattan uh, condo high rise. <laughs> uh, you have moved down to the Jersey Shore for this weekend to enjoy this glorious Sunday that we have, at least here in the Northeast United States. Yes. Um, so, Michael, your audio is just slightly different, but still wonderful to have you with us. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> also with us is Jan Simpson. Jan directs the arts reporting program at Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY, writes for TDF Stages American Theater Magazine, and has her own blog at Broadway and Me, and also hosts the Broadway radio podcast Stagecraft. Good morning, Jan. Morning. Good morning. Thank you for uh, joining us here on Broadway Radio on This Week on Broadway, because uh, we love having you. Oh, I always love the opportunity to talk with you guys. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that uh, this week's show is being brought to you by Jan, because uh, she came up with a great idea. And uh, and I said, come on, play with us. So uh, a few housekeeping themes for Broadway Radio. Um we the, the original sign-ups for this week on Broadway for the Sunday morning thing for our Patreon supporters uh, ran through the end of August, and uh, I have now extended that through the end of the year, through end, end of December. So if you want to join us on a Sunday morning and you are a Patreon supporter, you can uh, sign up uh, at patreon.com slash Radio and uh, sign up for any Sunday morning podcast that you want to join us for the recording sessions of This Week on Broadway. Also, some of you may have noticed that uh, in yesterday's Broadway radio feed, there was a podcast called The Daily from the New York Times. And um, I included that in which uh, some. Uh, something that we have been talking about and wanting to do for a while is create a separate Broadway radio feed of p- other podcasts that we we are recommending. Uh, and so it's a recommendation feed. 
And uh, the podcast from the Daily from the New York Times on Friday morning was about the uh, was about the production of Godspell that's been happening. Mm-hmm. And Michael Paulson from the New York Times uh, did a great audio report on it. So we included the Daily in our Broadway radio feed, which is something very different. And uh, and uh, hopefully as uh, as Broadway Radio grows, we'll be able to flesh out the recommendation feeds so that when we do talk about other great podcasts, it'll be easier for everybody to get to them. So, Jen. Yes. You wanted to <laughs> talk about the Three Kings of the Old Vic. Uh, so, tell us about this. Uh, the Old Vic is doing something a little different than other theaters have been doing that have presenting that have been presenting shows online. It seems to be trying to recreate the experience of going to the theater. So they are selling tickets, but only a number, the same number of uh, tickets that would be seats in in the house uh, at the Old Vic in London. Uh, And at first I thought, well, that's ridiculous because... (laughs) I mean, as many of us who are interested could could see this. They also had tiered pricing, which I oh, thought was even more ridiculous because we're all seeing it on the screen. Um, and they, uh, a lot of uh, productions, even though they are doing, um, I'm doing air quotes, limited runs, they will do the uh, performance and then they'll put it on YouTube or Vimeo or some other, other platform for a few days so that you can catch up with this you get a link to one performance you miss the performance that's your problem um and they're just a whole bunch of things that they've done that i thought were ridiculous until i did it and i really felt as though i were going to the theater I had to be there at a certain time. I had to be there uh-huh. at a certain time. Just as they do in uh, the theater in London, um, at least when I've gone, they announce a few, a few moments before curtain time. 15 minutes to curtain time, 10 minutes uh-huh. to curtain mm-hmm. time. And then they had the murmuring uh, <laughs> of, of the audience. And I started getting really excited. And then they had this uh, one man, a solo show um, called Three Kings, uh, Andrew Scott. Uh, Some people may uh, know him from Fleabag. He played the so-called hot priest on uh, uh, Fleabag. I'm I'm also told he played Moriarty on um, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's um, Sherlock Holmes. And he is a sensational actor. I, I don't have um, words enough to praise him. And he did this one-man show, lasted 55 minutes, about a man, and we see this man at various stages in his life, starting at eight, ending at probably uh, mid-40s, late-40s, and his relationship with his father, which is a very, very fraught relationship. It ends with the death of the father. It was terrific. He was really good, but what I really loved was just the feeling, the sensation of, even though I was sitting here in my living room, a feeling as I was going to the theater. 
Mm. Wow, that's interesting. That's very interesting. Uh, and I found the old Vic, uh, they're calling it in camera. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I found that information. I put it in the show notes uh, so that if uh, other ones come up and you are uh, listening and you are interested in this thing, it's e- easier to find. But uh, I like that that theory and the tiered pricing is funny. I, you know, I've seen tiered pricing for a lot of uh, uh, streaming events, but tiered in the way that the early purchasers get the lower price and as you get closer to quote-unquote curtain time – uh, it um, it escalates in price. Now, uh, also, I saw Jason Robert Brown had posted that Songs for a New World is is going to be the first live performance on the West End, mm. uh, and that the folks who are doing the streaming the last five years uh, have resumed their stream of the last five years. Uh, so those are two... Uh, different properties of Jason's that are being pr- uh, presented over uh, in uh, in in the London area. So, but uh, you know, uh, obviously, the Songs for a New World is not going to be available online. I don't think. I think it's an only an in-person thing. And then the uh, but the last five years is available. And Matt Temenini, uh saw and reviewed the last five years. Uh, the one that Jason's talking about, and said it was very, very good. So, looking what, forward to smart, smart ways of coming back to theater. What's interesting is that for the National Theater thing, that in camera, uh, you said that's what they're calling it. Yeah, mm-hmm. that has a double meaning. That also means in the room. Oh, interesting. In, in Italian, I believe. So, ah, in the room where it happens. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I wonder if. <laughs> so that's uh oh that's really cool uh so we'll have those uh links into uh into the show notes so you can find those things quickly michael you uh also mentioned before we started recording that uh mcc's miscast has got quite the lineup yes i noticed that it's coming up uh a week from today sunday september 13th at 8 p.m uh on MCC Theater's YouTube channel, it says uh, the lineup this year includes Norbert Leo Butts, Kenneth Cole, Robert Fairchild, Juliana Margulies, Ingrid Michelson, Leslie Odom Jr., Piper Parabo, Parabo, uh, uh, mm. Isaac Powell, Lauren Ridloff, and Thomas Sadowski. And the blurb says miscast. MCC Theater's annual gala celebration is one of the most anticipated and exciting theater events in New York each year, where the biggest stars of stage and screen take the stage to sing songs from roles in which they would never be cast. This year, for the first time ever, Miss Cast will go entirely digital, inviting in theater theater fans everywhere. The free 90-minute broadcast will be captioned and will feature all new performances, special guests, and more. So I think uh, I saw one or two of them live back in the day, and then I've seen a few others on video after the fact. Uh, This one will obviously be really interesting to see how they do it, uh, you know, how they do it online. But also, I'm wondering that, you know, what form Miss Cass is going to take this year and in future, given the, the major change that I think we've seen in terms of what roles people can or cannot play 
in terms of everything, gender, race. Uh, I mean, I don't think that that um, past miscasts have ever um, have ever suggested that that people couldn't role in terms of race or wouldn't be asked. So I don't think that would be new. But I wonder, um, in, in other ways, I, I wonder what the criterion are going to be uh, going forward for people saying roles in which they would never be cast. I, I imagine maybe age. <laughs> hmm. I think one year Chuck Cooper played Tevya. Yes, and then, of course, he wound up doing it on Broadway in, in, in um, uh, Broadway. Uh, and yes, so they've done, I think they've done things like that from the beginning. So that won't be new, but I wonder, um, as I say, what what criteria they will use in choosing the, the songs that they do. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I remember Jonathan Groff did uh, uh, the title song from Anything Goes uh, as a full tap dance number. Which is, which is like a, a breakout uh, hit on YouTube. Uh, oh, is it? <laughs> it's been a totally a viral hit when, when Groff did Anything Goes, yeah. Well, have you seen it? Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, it was a real production number. Uh, I, uh, and his tapping was so great. And uh, the tequila was a whole chorus with him, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah, it was incredible. <laughs> so I'm sure that my point is, I'm sure that they are all going to come up with some very interesting ideas. And with a cast like that, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm sure it will be worth tuning in if you can. So, um, yeah, so... Rob uh, McClure is going to, uh, has actually already recorded and talked with Matt Tamanini for Broadway Radio uh, about Miscast, and that uh, episode's going to run on Tuesday, I believe, on some time. Sometime. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, aside from being how awesome Rob McClure is, uh, Matt and Rob have, you know, caught up with each other on Broadway Radio a couple of times in the last couple of years. Uh, this is a really wonderful interview, and I'm looking forward to listening to it. And we were asked, of course, not to mention what songs people are singing, because they want it to be, this, be the big surprise on Sunday, September 13th at 8pm on the YouTube channel of MCC. Mm. So that is really exciting, and uh, you know, uh, so much fun to watch. I mean, even if uh, e- even if we're not at the theater, at least we can uh, see these things. Peter, you are going to the theater. You're jumping in the uh, the Felicia Mobile and heading up <laughs> heading up to Connecticut to uh, Norwalk to the Music Theater of Connecticut, but to see a play. Right? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, they're doing Fully Committed, and it's going to be nice to see it again. Matt Densky, um, whom I've known uh, from my um, teaching assignments at the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music um, is going to be playing the role um, of the harried uh, reservation taker uh, <clears throat> in an upscale restaurant who really wants to be an actor and is not getting very far um, and um, wants to go home for Christmas to see his daddy, who's being very brave about the fact that he may not be able to get there. And you really come to care about this this guy and the father, too, even though he's a voice on the phone. And the voice on the phone is still the voice of the actor because the actor has to provide all the voices of the people who are calling in. 
And uh, this was a very successful play uh, about 20 years ago. And one of my favorite memories of it was uh, talking to Roger Bart when he took over from the original uh, actor, because um, he he told me that um, even though he lived in the 70s and the show was at the Cherry Lane, which is way down um, in the village uh, before the street starts having numbers, uh, he said he was so exhilarated that he did such a good job. He was so pleased with himself that he walked all the way home. He was just so full of energy and happiness that that's what, something he just had to do. And it's so wonderful to hear that from an actor who's taking over a role. I mean, there's not going to be any obies. There's not going to be any drama discs, nothing like that. It's going to be simply the fact that he's going to uh, get a paycheck every week. But the idea of doing a job and doing it well is really something to be applauded. And so I really um, was so impressed by Roger Bart when he told me that. Well, the piece is so wonderful to begin with. Uh, it was created by Mark Setlock. I mean, he was the first person mm-hmm. to do it. Uh, and he is one of the co-creators of it with Becky Mode. Mm-hmm. That's her name. Brand. Yep, yep. Um, and and uh, 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 more recently, of course, Jesse Tyler Ferguson did it on Broadway. Mm-hmm. briefly and had a great success with it and then just at the beginning of the pandemic uh, uh mark returned to the role mark setlock uh in a in an online presentation and it uh, just from peter's description of the play you can probably tell what a how perfect it is let me also say um, that uh, uh, when this play was being written, I knew about it because a friend of mine, I'm not going to give her a name because um, this story doesn't put her in such a great light. But um, anyway, she's an Oscar winner uh, for short subjects. And um, so she's been very successful. But anyway, um, she was working with Becky Mode in some capacity. Becky was um, not um, uh, like a low-level grunt uh, in whatever project she was doing. And she said to me, yeah, this Becky keeps on talking about this play she's writing. Yeah, sure, everybody's writing a play. You know, we'll see if it gets on. Well, it certainly did, and it's been extraordinarily successful. So for those of you out there who are writing plays and you get discouraged, because after all, the idea of something happening does seem as... um, strong as you're winning the lottery, um, both Powerball and Lotto on the same uh, day, the fact remains that <laughs> miracles do happen. <laughs> so, uh, so keep writing. Okay. So uh, that's going to take us through Friday for Peter, but let's flash back to today when we're going to uh, in the United States, I should preface it by saying, in the United States, our uh, holiday Labor Day is uh, tomorrow, uh, Monday, September 7th, which is a national holiday here in the U.S. And so we thought today we would talk about working stiffs, which was a great topic brought up by Jan. So Jan, why don't you introduce what you mean by working stiffs? Well, I thought of it because of Labor Day, but I also thought of it because we've been talking so much about essential workers uh, since Uh, the hmm. pandemic. Um, And these are people who generally are low paid or modestly paid, um, who don't get a lot of respect, who work um, very hard and who have the same, you know, dreams and aspirations as the rest of us, but, um, are largely ignored and do a lot of what I think Peter just called the grunt work. 
mm-hmm. uh, that keeps our society moving. And so I thought uh, it would be interesting to talk about some plays that focus on them because, of course, the way theater <laughs> worked way back when, it started out It started out looking at the gods and kings and then moved to noble people and then rich people. And it wasn't really until uh, the middle of the 20th century that theater started looking at the lives of working people, ordinary people. And even today, we don't have lots and lots of shows that do that, but we do have some. And so I thought as a way to uh, celebrate uh, Labor Day, we might talk about some of the plays that did it and, 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 and did it well. Okay, so why don't you get us started here, Jan? What are some of your favorites? Well, the first show that came to my mind was a show called To the Bone by Lisa Ramirez. Um, And I saw this uh, six years ago down at the Cherry Lane Theater. It's a drama about a group of um, uh, Latina, uh, Latin, uh, Latinx women, some of them uh, citizens, some of them uh, undocumented, who work in an upstate New York poultry factory. Um, and these are the women who are, you know, plucking feathers and cutting chicken to the bone um, and preparing the chicken that you pick up in a supermarket. And the p- play uh, focuses on uh, how much they can and how much they should stand up to their bosses who are really not nice guys. They regulate everything, um, how often the women can take bathroom breaks. They have to ask for permission. Uh, They live in an area uh, where uh, you need cars to get around. They can't afford uh, cars. And if they are, you know, just a few minutes late, they're severely docked. And uh, there's also some sexual harassment uh, of of the women, and yet what we what we see is just the dignity of of these women, the caring for one another. Uh, it takes place both in a home that they they share, they rent rooms from uh, a, a, a woman and on the shop floor. And it was just uh, a very moving look at a group of people that I don't think most of us even think about. And so that was the first uh, uh, show um, I, I thought about. So, uh, Peter, what about from you? Well, I think a, a woman who really does very hard work is... Um, Annie Sullivan in The Miracle Worker. Hmm. Uh, She has to take on Helen Keller. Uh, This play has one of the great opening lines of all time because you go in there knowing you're going to see a play about Helen Keller who, uh, through a childhood illness, uh, was rendered um, deaf and blind. Um, And in the first scene, you see uh, the doctor looking over the child, and the first line is, she'll live. And the parents are so excited that the worst is over, except it isn't. You know, um, the kid is deaf and blind, which they will soon learn. Well, 
anyway, they treat the kid, um, they, they think it's hopeless, so they treat the kid like an animal. And um, the kid walks around the table and just grabs scraps of food and what have you. So she's totally incorrigible. And, um, and Annie Sullivan is brought in to, uh, to help make her a fully actualized human being. And she does. And watching that happen is really something, especially when, after she says to the parents, I need total control of this kid. I have to take her away from you and uh, start from ground one and teach her everything. And, and it's quite a, 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 a situation, especially when you consider the, uh, the scene where um, it's, it's a wordless scene. Uh, um, there, certainly there are screams, but uh, there are no words when um, Annie has to show her that she's not going to eat the way she used to, that she's going to eat like a real human being sitting at a table with a knife and a fork in her hand. And uh, it's a phenomenal scene. One of the great mysteries of all time is the fact that Patty Duke did not get a Tony nomination for playing Helen Keller. She won an Oscar, but she didn't get a Tony nomination. Mm -hmm. I don't mean a Tony. I mean a nomination she didn't get. And you would think that um, she would have gotten that just because this is an an astonishing role. But Annie Sullivan is the one who makes it happen, and she's the real hero. So so I think when it comes to workers, she has one of the toughest jobs of all time, and she certainly rose to the occasion. Hmm. So, Michael, how about you? Well, first of all, I wanted to say it's wonderful how well uh, fully committed fits our theme. So that yeah. was great. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously it was coincidence because Peter's going to see it, but that, that, that worked out really well, Peter. Uh, that poor guy in fully committed works so hard. It's, it's really incredible. And for no recognition and I'm sure very little pay mm. he uh, no no recognition I mean whereas the I think we're made to think that maybe the chef in this restaurant is almost a celebrity chef and you know then there's the front of the front of house staff or whatever you'd call them the the maitre d and all those people who are the public face of it but then here's this grunt worker just taking the reservations and having to deal with all these personalities and also seeming to have all these other duties he has to do because no one else will do them. There's a point, very memorable point where someone has an accident in the men's room and he has to go clean it up because there's nobody else to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, I think it's very metaphorical for, (laughs) you know, for what his job is supposed to be. Um, I, uh, I love Jan's point about how, how late it was, how comparatively recent it was uh, before playwrights began writing about working people rather than gods and nobles and things like that. It's incredible uh, when you think about it. And uh, I, uh, I occasionally will still hear people uh, identify tragedy using the classical uh, description of it, where it has to be a, a, a person of high stature, a, 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 you know, a god or a, a noble falling from grace. Uh, and and there's one theory that true tragedy can't involve a working stiff, but I I don't know. I, I personally don't think that has been true for years or more, uh, probably more. Uh, mm-hmm. I always think death of a salesman is one of the Absolutely. And it's interesting to look back at some of the uh, some of the first some of the first examples of the form. There was that whole agitprop um, uh, era in the in the early 1900s, uh, 
starting in the early 1900s. And then later after that, with plays like Waiting for Lefty Mm -hmm. and, uh, of course, The Cradle Will Rock. Um, And those are always fascinating to see how that subject matter was handled so, so long ago. And I think those plays, in many ways, are the basis for many that have come since then because they got there first. Well, you know, um, we always talk about what we'd go back in a time machine and see, and I always mention Cradle of Rock for the opening night. But but um, Waiting for Lefty is another one that uh, fits the description because supposedly, um, I think it was the opening night, uh, that uh, when the people were yelling on stage, strike, strike, the actors were yelling, strike, strike, that the audience picked up the chant and started uh, screaming along with them. And, uh, and that's pretty impressive. Um, this is not the type of theater go we think of uh, when we see the movie Dinner at Eight, uh, when they talk about, oh, we'll go to the theater a little late tonight, and that'll be fine, um, yeah, because it seems almost irrelevant to them. Um, so, so that must have really been something way back when uh, to see Waiting for Lefty. <laughs> so, uh, Tony Janicki in the uh, chat room brings up uh, Sweat. Uh, yeah. about mm-hmm. a good play about working people, which uh, I was thinking about as well. Uh, on a more commercial scale, I thought of uh, Dolly Parton's musical 9 to 5. Sure. Uh, you know, and of course, the pajama game. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> and working. And working. The musical yeah. working, mm-hmm. uh, which... Um, um, and if you read Stud Chergill's book, uh, which is simply interviews with people who have this job, that job, and the other job. Wonderful book. Phenomenal book. But um, if you read Dolores Dante's uh, essay on uh, being a waitress and then listen to Stephen Schwartz's song, of all the Stephen Schwartz's songs, um, that is my favorite song. Um, I think it's the most skillful. It's very smart of him to put it to a waltz because uh, a waltz suggests um, happiness. And uh, she loves her job. But... uh, there's a lyric in the song about Carmen, which you really think is just um, going to be there as a rhyme for barman. But indeed, Dolores Dante, the real Dolores Dante, um, used the word uh, Carmen. She talks about feeling like Carmen uh, when she's a waitress. So so it wasn't a stretch for him at all. Uh, I was so moved by this song that when I went to Chicago the next year, I looked up Dolores Dante in the phone book to call her and tell her how moved I was by her essay. She wasn't home. She was working. Of course she wasn't home. You know? <laughs> and this was just at the advent of ad, uh, everybody having an answering machine. So uh, so the phone just rang and rang and rang. <laughs> funny, funny, funny. Well, uh, Waitress itself. Absolutely. The, uh, you know? Absolutely. Um, what a wonderful musical that we hope will uh, live on in men in I can't wait to see the regions take on waitress and uh because it's it's also gonna be uh a musical that could be done on the college level without being wildly age aged uh aged out so um you know it's unfortunate when you see you know uh you know, some sort of Arthur Miller play or something done in a college setting with uh, 19, 20 year olds. And it could be awesome, but it's also, <laughs> it it feels wrong to me sometimes on, on some levels. So uh, Jan, what's next on your list? Well, actually, you know, I came up with a list of three dozen shows. So okay. I, so I'm everybody not, buckle not, in. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing uh, all of that. 
But um, pinging off what some of you have uh, talked about, Michael uh, or, or Peter, I guess it was Michael, was saying uh, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, people were dealing with this. And the classic uh, play is uh, The Adding Machine mm-hmm. I thought by Elmer Rice, yeah. where we have a, a guy, he's just a regular guy. He works in an office. He's sort of an, a drone, an anonymous drone, uh, adding up numbers. That's what he does all day, but he does it well and he's proud of doing it well. And then he finds out that his company is going to bring in an adding machine that can do it more quickly and, of course, more cheaply than he. And this ordinary meat, milk toast guy uh, just becomes enraged and kills his boss. Spoilers here, but the play is from 1923. <laughs> um, and he kills his boss and uh, is uh, arrested and convicted and executed. And the remainder of the play takes place in heaven or some sort of afterlife mm, place right. where he is trying to figure out what happened in his life and uh, justify what he should do, what he should have done. Um, It's obviously um, an expressionistic play uh, from that time, but one of the first to really get at uh, the working life. And I also just wanted to jump in with uh, 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 Tony Janicki's talking about Sweat, which of course um, was a Pulitzer Prize winner for Lynn Nottage. Uh, But the same year, um, Dominique Mariso came out with the play Skeleton Crew, which I saw down at the uh, Atlantic uh, Theater Company. And it deals with the same uh, subjects, but in a, in a smaller way. It's just four people. Uh, it, we see them in their break room. They work at a factory that uh, transforms steel into auto parts, it's one of the few uh, such shops uh, functioning because the play takes place during the 2008 recession. And their plant, it's not clear that it's going to make it either. And looking at the different kinds of people who take these jobs, um, and it is a span. When we look at working stiff plays and you look at something like adding machine or death of a salesman or, you know, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, we feel sorry uh, for these people. But one of the things that happens in uh, skeleton crew is we see the various kinds of people who are drawn to this work and some, because they're just proud of what they can make, what they can contribute, what they can do others, because at one point uh, factory work Um, in this country was good paying work and they see this as a way to, you know, uh, produce for their families and others, they see it as a, 
just a transitional thing. One of the four people is uh, a young guy who wants to be a rapper. Uh, but the main part of the play, the main conflict is on whether or not they're going to be uh, fired and the uh, foreman. And I think this was the most interesting character to me because when there's downsizing or firing people, it's not the CEOs who are coming to talk to the people about it. Um, Those guys, maybe one or two women, those people are leaving with their golden parachutes or maybe even staying with the company in a reconfigured way. It's the middle managers who are really caught between the higher ups and the people who, uh, as in sweat, the people that uh, they were once working alongside and now have to determine who's going to stay and who's going to go. And I, I, I thought it was a really uh, terrific piece, as good as, um, as Sweat. Not as well known, but, but I think just as good. I agree. Um, I was very impressed by that play, very moved by it, and uh, very impressed by the character who's really trying to get somewhere. And, um, and we find out that that character will get somewhere, so, uh, which is really very good. Um, a Tree Grows in Brooklyn, a musical that uh, I think suffered because it was perilously close to uh, Carousel, and it was only uh, six years later, um, because it is about a guy who... Um, gets married and and has a tough time with it and um, winds up disappointing his wife. But um, the opening song is uh, Mine Till Monday. And what it is, is they, um, it's the end of the week. They're getting paid. There's a song called Payday. Everybody's getting paid. And so as a result, what these guys do is they go to the pawn shops and they take out what they have pawned during the week to get money. Hmm. And now um, they're getting their um, stuff back, but it's only mine till Monday because by Monday, the money they've used uh, to go drinking and um, to, to take their minds off the fact that they have to work these terrible sandhog type jobs. Um, they, uh, on Monday, the stuff will go back in the pawn shop and that's, it's, it's a never ending cycle. When I mentioned sandhogs, I don't know if you know the term, but it's, um, the term given to people who, um, mm. dig out the dig tunnels, yeah, the tunnels, um, yeah. mostly to make the subways. And that's what these guys were doing in a tree grows in Brooklyn. I'm pretty sure that's what they were doing. But anyway, there was actually a musical called sandhog on Broadway back in the fifties. Uh, it's a, very hard to get album and whenever anybody gets it um it, the person is inevitably disappointed because it really is simply the demo of the show it's not uh, fully orchestrated or anything like that and you don't have a cast doing it so if you're an avid original cast album collector who wants to have everything and you don't have sandhog um don't worry about it so much it's not going to please you as much as you think it will so tony janicki just blew a theory of mine out of the water Oh. Uh, so let me tell you the theory first, and I'll tell you how Tony blew me out of the water here. <laughs> so I, I, I've been thinking about this in that um, uh, Europeans tell me that Americans really define themselves by their occupation. Uh, and so I, I, I'm not – I don't really know if that's true or not. I guess anecdotally I think that is true because, you know, first thing you – 
talk about when you meet somebody new is, oh, what do you do? Which is a uh, lyric in the Full Monty, in fact. Yeah, and then Tony Janicki said, what about the Full Monty, which is not American? Oh, how funny. <laughs> <laughs> how funny that I mentioned and, that. And Tony Janicki also brought up Carousel. Uh, I think it was Tony. Oh, was it uh, Cheryl Hodges Selden that brought it up? But um, but so the Full Monty, Peter, tell tell us about that. Well, indeed, um, uh, one of the smartest things that uh, the Full Monty did, I have to say, when um, uh, was the fact that uh, they changed the setting from um, England to uh, Buffalo. Because I'm telling you, watching that movie, you better have the subtitles on because the accents are very, very thick. And I think that was really wise. And I think it's one of the reasons Matilda didn't run longer. If they Americanized it, um, it mm. would have done better. But that said, the mm. Full Monty is about guys who are out of work because the factory closed down. And they're very, very discouraged because their wives still have jobs. And uh, the wives are uh, really at the beginning um, have a song called It's a Woman's World because indeed they feel like they're bringing home the bacon. And uh, the guys are essentially um, now um, house husbands. In fact, uh, one of the lyrics is, um, and I've got dishes um, at home uh, that I have to uh, wash. Um, and, uh, and it's really a very sad thing uh, to see these men out of work simply because a factory closed and did it have to close. What's really uh, also compelling about um, the show is that the guys also find uh, that their boss is now uh, in serious trouble too, especially because he's been providing for his wife in luxurious fashion. And um, he, he really feels that he can't afford anything anymore. And um, he's still buying things for her on credit and hoping it'll all work out. And the reaction of the wife when um, she finds out what happened is really quite wonderful. You really find out that she doesn't just regard him as a meal ticket. She really does uh, love him. But it's a very sad thing to watch these guys really struggle. And of course, the uh, one of them comes up with the idea of um, stripping and going the full Monty. It's, it's interesting that British term was retained for the musical, obviously because uh, the brand name was so established here because the movie was a surprise hit. But um, anyway, it is a British expression meaning totally, well, naked is naked. You don't say totally naked, I guess. But anyway, um, uh, so that's uh, what they're going to do to raise money. So they're going to be working in a very different capacity. A very different, And of course, um, some of the guys uh, feel that they uh, don't want to take off their clothes because um, they don't look like the guys at Chippendales, which is, by the way, one of the reasons that this idea took flight, because the women hmm. go to Chippendales and they have enough money to burn that they actually stuff dollar bills in um, his uh, jockstrap and what have you. So, yeah, so this is about workers who want to work but have been denied work because the factory was closed because um, it's cheaper to have these uh, factories in um, India or Bangladesh or what have you than it is in Buffalo, New York. When, when you, you know, you uh, talked about uh, England, um, it brought to mind two shows. One, The Pittman Painters mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. by Lee Hall, which was a drama. But then, of course, Lee Hall also did the libretto for Billy Elliot. Mm -hmm. And both shows are about coal miners. And uh, the, the Pittman Painters is about a real-life uh, group of, of men who uh, wanted to take evening classes. Uh, they were coal miners. They wanted to improve themselves. The only class somehow they could get was an art history class. Uh, the art history prof 
professor realized that the best way to to teach them was to get them painting themselves. And they became for a while in England before World War II actually very famous because at least a couple of them became very accomplished uh, painters. And uh, the so the play just basically tells uh, 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 their story. Uh, but Obviously, for Lee Hall, the idea of working class people who have artistic souls is really interesting uh, because, of course, that's the the theme, the underlying theme of Billy Elliot, uh, coal miner's son, who desperately wants to become a ballet dancer. Um, so... Uh, not just here, working class people, but obviously in England too. Yeah, and it's really something when that father um, becomes, as the term goes, a scab, going back on the strike so that his kid can go to school and become a ballet dancer. Right. It's nothing that the father can really relate to. And uh, certainly many fathers would say, I'm not doing anything to help him become a ballet dancer. What a mm-hmm. um, ridiculous thing to even think about. Um, so uh, you really see that the father loves his son. Um, and this is a perfect example of showing rather than telling the father doesn't have a speech or a song where he says, I love my son. No, we know he does by breaking, um, the picket line and, um, and going to work so that his kid can have this opportunity. So, um, it's really something Barbara Streisand made her, um, fame, um, well, yes, of course, with Funny Girl, but but before that, when she was in I Can Get It For Your Wholesale, because she right. played Miss Marmalstein, the harried, overworked, underpaid, mm-hmm. unmarried. Um, in those days, this took place in the 30s. Um, you know, when you're not getting any younger, that was a big uh, deal, that you might horrors become an old maid. Um, so her song, Miss Marmalstein, written after she was cast, by the way, uh, once Harold Drome saw what she was like, he um, he thought about his song from Pins and Needles, another show that dealt with uh, workers um, back in 1937 and um, and wrote a song for her specifically that really made her stop the show. I, I, I was there. I saw it. It was incredible. Um, but um, that same year, 1962, uh, they decided to have a 25th anniversary recording of Pins and Needles because um, it predated the Oklahoma original cast album era. And Streisand's on that album, too. It's one of my favorite albums. And uh, it deals all with workers and their problems uh, in one way or another. So um, so I really recommend you're getting Pins and Needles, uh, not just for Barbara Streisand, but also for the songs themselves by Harold Rommel. It was his first score. He would go on to have many Broadway successes, um, and, but also write the Japanese version of uh, Gone with the Wind that was called Scarlet um, out in Tokyo. It later made its way to London. Uh, played here here in uh, the West, West Coast, never made it to Broadway. But um, anyway, um, Pins and Needles is well worth hearing and having. So let me uh, correct from before. It was Her- Cheryl Hodges-Seldon that talked about Carousel. She also mentioned Carolina Change. Oh, uh, so- yeah. That's a very good one. Wow. Um, boy, I'm telling you, that, that show, um, is, is, uh, what a shame we, we didn't see it this uh, spring as we were supposed to. But, yes, the idea that um, uh, a mother says that she's going to discipline her son by having Caroline, the maid who does the washing, um, you can keep all the change in the pockets. 
Yeah, but what happens when it's not change, when it's more than change? Uh, and it really shows you that they're willing to give a little to the maid, a little lag me up, but, uh, but not much more. So uh, that's a very, very effective uh, scene uh, in the show. There are so many shows, uh, so many plays, of course, and musicals with characters who are working people. But some of the shows focus more on that than others. Uh, and then in other cases, it's just something to maybe give a little bit more of a, of a life to the character, even if there's not a lot of focus on it. I'm thinking of uh, actually two August Wilson shows we mentioned not long ago. One is Fences. Um, and that main character, Troy, that's his name, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He is a garbage man. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, and, and there's not a lot of focus on that, but it's, uh, again, I would say probably pretty metaphorical and also, uh, in terms of maybe how his son is trying to be upwardly mobile and, and get away from something like that. And I think that adds a lot to that play, uh, and if he, and if we didn't even know that about him, whereas. But uh, of course, Troy, Troy was a baseball player. Yeah. Oh, well, yes. Yes. And, yeah. and, and so that. Just right, a little yeah. too early to. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's the real tragedy of it. There was also a musical called Bingo Long and the Traveling All-Stars based on a movie. And that same plot device does happen where um, Bingo Long has this uh, troupe that does travel uh, and uh, play ball here and there. And uh, what eventually happens is the fact that his uh, Bingo Long is a, a guy who was in his prime in the 30s, but it's not until 1947 that baseball integrates and he sees his team members leaving to play in the major leagues and he, he doesn't want to stop them. Uh, he understands they're having the opportunities, but what a shame he didn't have it because he was better than all of them. But it, it just born too early. So, um, yeah, very, very, um, mm-hmm. very, very impressive show. Um, Michael, what was the uh, second August Wilson show? Oh, well, Jitney, you know, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, which is actually set in the office where uh, uh, gives this car service, this Jitney service. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so that, I, I, as I said, I, that's one of my favorites because I think they, that is used so well by Wilson in creating these, these wonderful, very vivid characters. But, um, and you have, uh, we mentioned the pajama game earlier, but mm-hmm. that's probably worth talking about a little bit more, uh, on a very different note from, from the, uh, the kinds of the, 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 the Wilson plays that I just mentioned, but there it's, uh, I mean, I would say that for 90% of the pajama game is a, is an out now musical comedy. Uh, quite light, I would say, but it is about, you know, this core issue of these workers in a pajama factory uh, where it's really drudgery and how they are fighting for seven and a half cents more per hour. (laughs) Um, And there is some, you know, some dramatic content in it in the midst of all the musical comedy. Uh, One of the main character, Babe, uh, she's supposed to be the the union representative, um, so there's a lot of the the uh, union versus labor in in that musical, even though it is a musical comedy. And then she gets fired for uh, for gumming up the works at one point in protest, and that whole central relationship is between her as as a union 
organizer and representative and uh, the superintendent, the new superintendent of the the factory. And, and they're on opposite sides in that sense. But meanwhile, they're, they're trying to be boyfriend and girlfriend. And Pajama Game, I mean, the whole opening number, it's actually about the, the drudgery of the working experience called Racing with the Clock. Um, and then there's even another song about it. Uh, uh, think of the time, I say, because this character of Heinz is supposed to be the he calls himself a time study man, and it's his job to keep everyone working as fast as they can and being as productive as they can and keeping the pressure on at all times in the factory, which is really, I, you know, I not funny, um, but it, it it's so interesting how they deal with it in that uh, piece, for, as for example, compared to, you know, the movie Norma Ray. Where it's uh, where the full tragedy and, and unfairness of that is pointed out, um, and in Pajama Game, it's so much about the working experience that uh, I, I'm I'm not 100 percent sure about that. This, but isn't that whole picnic that they go on? Is that supposed to be a Labor Day picnic? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, <laughs> I think that it sounds is. right. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds um, right. And even if not, it, it, it's really so. Another song about the the working experience is the is the song Seven and a Half Cents" towards the yeah. end, where they're mm-hmm. they're protesting, they're picketing to to get the money. So it's I find it fascinating how this really really basically light musical comedy deals with all of that subject matter. Good point. Make, makes me think of Emma Goldman and Ragtime. Ah, yes, Ragtime, indeed. and then of course Rags, in which uh, you ah, know one, one ah, of the one of right. the great tragedies of human history, the mm-hmm. Triangle Shirtwaist Factory mm-hmm. fire, mm-hmm. is dealt with uh, just tangentially. Because to their credit, I think they realize that if they ever tried to really. Uh, really portray that more in detail and uh, that it it would have been so overwhelming that the whole show would have had to be about that. Uh, So I I always think that they were very wise in the way that they dealt with that. It's an offstage horrendous, horrendous tragedy that takes the lives of, uh, well, at least one of the, of the major characters. You know, Cabaret puts us in the middle of a working environment and is tangential of the work to tell the story of society, of what's going on around them. So, Peter, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to mention that uh, a show that we really don't see people working per se, but we know that they are workers and that they're not high paid workers is hands on a hard body Ah, uh, where they enter mm -hmm. a contest where they have to keep their hands on a truck. And if you even take it off for a tenth of a second, you've lost the chance to win a big prize. And um, but we know that anybody who would do this uh, really needs the money and is terribly desperate. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> I do think Hands in a Hard Body is, is a musical that uh, deserves another look. I know that um, somebody in Texas gave it another look um, and gave it too much of a look and changed it very mm-hmm. dramatically that uh, Amanda Green, um, one of the writers, decided to stop the production because it was so far away from what she envisioned. Nevertheless, um, I do think that we should look again at Hands in a Hard Body, and I understand that it is getting some, um, well, until this happened, of course, um, 
some productions um, uh, on a community theater level. And um, I hope it wends its way back because I do think there's a lot of worth in it. Um, so, uh, but that's one that shows us workers in a very different capacity, mm -hmm. supposedly on their leisure time. Well, what kind of leisure time is it? Um, no, it's not uh, leisure time at all. And, and yet they come to it with, with great excitement um, uh, and steel pier too. I mean, here are people who have uh, to work. Yeah. Yeah, they have to do in a dance marathon, and um, as just as in the the movie that spurred, it's not an adaptation, but spurred Candor um, and Ebb to write a musical um, about the marathon experience. They shoot horses, don't they? Is the movie that they were really starting to uh, look at to adapt, but there was a rights problem or something like that. But anyway, um, if you watch the movie of They Shoot Horses, Don't They? It's really very effective to see these people starting out full of beans and kicking up their heels and all this kind of stuff and really um, showing, oh, I can do this. Yeah, there's no problem. By the end, you know, uh, oh boy, it's a very different story. They're exhausted. And that happened in Steel Pier, too. So um, if, if you think your job is hard, try marathon dancing. <laughs> Let me uh, throw some additional ones in here. How to succeed. Sure. Uh, how to succeed, which uh, more of a <laughs> satire look from a uh, the worker's point of view. Um, Steve Bell brought up a catered affair. Yeah. Uh, Anthony Janik, he talks about the most happy fella. Uh, and also Cheryl Hodges Selden uh, chimed in with, oh, most happy fella. Ooh, my feet. <laughs> <laughs> Which plays into hands on a hard body and steel pier as well. <laughs> and uh, Tony Janik, he also brought up uh, promises, promises are ordinary workers when the show begins. So, yeah. yeah. And not, let's not forget she loved me. Oh, yeah. She, the perfumery. <laughs> right, um, you know, and uh, and that, it's very dramatic when uh, George loses his job and unfairly, um, and uh, we uh, and the boss later finds out that uh, he made a big mistake in firing him. Uh, um, so, uh, so yeah, the the thought of "do not lose your job" is one of the lyrics, and she loves me, <laughs> and it really turns out to be something that uh, many people, uh, of course, have on their minds almost every day they go to work. You know, am I going to do something today that's going to make me lose my job? Is today the day? I've heard so many people say that over the years that they go into their job with trepidation mm. because their bosses are, may not be sympathetic, or um, the, the bosses feel like they have to be hard asses, or else they won't get results. You know, so uh, um, maybe as hard ass as Henry Higgins and My Fair Lady, uh, who uh, certainly isn't an easy boss for his uh, worker, so to speak, Eliza. Um, you know, there's a, a real problem there, to say the least. But um, Paul Witte uh, brings up uh, the life. You know, it's mm. funny. I was trying to think of something that would indicate uh, prostitution mm. because um, – mm. In working, uh, there's not a song given to a prostitute, but there is a monologue given. I think Patti LuPone delivered it, uh, if I remember correctly. But I was thinking, gee, you know, uh, Irma Deuce. Um, no, that she seems to enjoy her work. I forgot all about the life. So, Paul, mm -hmm. um, very good uh, to bring it up because, uh, sure, um, this does not glamorize uh, what prostitution is. And uh, even though Lilius White has a song... Um, about the oldest profession, how she's tired of getting too old for the oldest profession, which is a comic song. There's real truth behind it. Real truth. This is not from uh, the life, but there's that fabulous line that was in Elaine Stritch at Liberty, mm. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not the work, it's the stairs. Yeah. As the prostitute says, it's not the work, it's the stairs. Yeah. And, and some people I've heard were actually confused about that line. Like, what, did, what does she mean? Did she mean S-T-A-R-E-S? Oh, how funny. Interesting. How funny. I said, well, you could, you know, that that would have a different meaning. But I think it just means... S-T-A-I-R-S, and it's just exactly. about how, in a way, even something as, you know, whatever, demeaning uh, yeah. as, as prostitution, mm-hmm. it, it's not It's not that so much. It's the effort and like climbing all those stairs mm-hmm. 10 mm-hmm. times a day. Or well, you know, we're all talking about people who have got the job, and you, before you get the job, God, I hope I get it. We haven't mentioned mm. chorus line. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, of course, one of the reasons the show was so successful is because all of us can relate to being on job interviews. And that's what this essentially is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, there's, there was always that theory that a show about show people could never be that successful mm. because people, um, the average audience member, doesn't think uh, that the show business is as arduous or difficult as it is, or they, they all they see is the glamour, you know, because they've seen so many movies where everything works out fine and the understudy succeeds and what have you. So, um, so Chorus Line really brought it home about how difficult it is to get a job. And um, after all that, when the when the people find out they get the job, they find out they're getting minimum salary, and I mean, it's it's just so sad. And they're not going to be stars. And um, indeed, uh, so many who were in Chorus Line did not become stars, even though they may have expected they would be since the show got so much attention. So they became working stiffs uh, for the rest of their careers for most, for the most part. Well, you know, uh, how many of us have had this, uh, this experience that they are all set for this really awesome job that they hear about and they walk in the door and their lover is on the other side of the desk, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what do you do? <laughs> Yeah, a, a woman I turned down for a job um, <laughs> later turned out to be my boss in another job. So, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Top billing one day, next day you're touring in stock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, I will give each one of you one more. We just hit the hour mark. So why don't, do you have one more that you have to talk about this morning, Jan? Hmm. Uh, I'm torn, so I'm going to squeeze in uh, two very quickly. I'm just going to say the okay. flick, the flick by Annie Baker. Oh uh, yeah, which Absolutely. was a oh, yeah. Pulitzer Prize winner about uh, two people who are ushers in a movie theater yeah. and the projectionists, um, and just the drudgery of of, of their work. And uh, people re- may remember that the play. Uh, uh, unspools over three hours and many people when the play first started at Playwrights Residence left at the intermission. Yeah, So mm-hmm. many people left that the artistic director of the company had to actually issue a letter in That's support right. yeah. of the play saying this is a good play. And then of course it went on to win the Pulitzer Prize. But the one that I that was my squeeze-in. My, <laughs> my other is a less-known play, um, but it's called Assistance. It was also at Playwrights Horizons by a woman named Leslie Hedlund. And Leslie Hedlund worked as an assistant for Harvey Weinstein. Oh. Uh, yes, who, when you're talking about, you know, difficult bosses. Um, 
and this takes place in the office of a mogul, a media mogul of some kind. We never see him. It's his assistants who are trying to please this really tyrannical boss. Um, it took place before the play came out before the Me Too revelations about, uh, you know, what a really awful person uh, uh, Harvey Weinstein was in, in, in terms of uh, pushing himself sexually on um, women. But it does show, even if you're not, you know, in a coal mine or digging a tunnel or that kind of work, how um, oppressive even working in an office can be. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Uh, Peter, one last one? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm going to um, mention um, one that isn't uh, very well known, but um, it, it, it moved me tremendously when I saw it. And, oh, no, you know what I'll mention? I'll mention Grand Hotel instead, because, oh, um, okay. because Grand Hotel really shows us a number of uh, workers who are having uh, difficulties. There's the, the, the guy at the, uh, at the front desk who, uh, whose wife is having a baby, and he can't even be with her, uh, which is so sad. Uh, Flemchen, who, uh, is, who has dreams of going to Hollywood, but is, is a typist and has to put up with sexual harassment by a guy who's having his own troubles. His, his company's going broke, uh, and he has to... Um, do something illegal to make it happen, which is difficult. And uh, so you see so many of the people in the hotel having troubles, including Gryuskaya, I'm not pronouncing it well, but anyway, the ballerina who um, is no longer, well, as the line goes, uh, so she doesn't sell out anymore, huh? Because um, she's old um, and uh, she can't dance the way she used to. And uh, so, and then there's the Baron who isn't acting in a Baron like noble fashion at all because he's stealing jewelry. So this is all about um, people who are um, having trouble uh, with their jobs or around their jobs. And, uh, to me, this is one of the great musicals of all time. I thought it was tremendously underappreciated. Um, and yeah, I ran a thousand performances, but nevertheless, I think it's a masterpiece. And the, the original production was a masterpiece. Uh, Tommy Toon never did better work, even though he usually did spectacular work. This is the most spectacular of all. Um, and, um, and so Grand Hotel is one that uh, really shows the problems of workers here, there, and everywhere on every level of the Grand Hotel. I think some have, some have not. Why? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Michael, how about you? One last one? Yeah, I was thinking because of its great fame and classic status and because it's so seminal, I'd like to end with Showboat, uh, uh, which, yeah. uh, I mean, it starts off with a song about uh, the plight of these uh, black workers. It, it, it's not... It's it's post slavery technically, technically, but but you know, but it might as well still be going on, and uh, the the fact that the incredible irony of the uh, just the Cotton Blossom is the name of the showboat, uh, you know, this this wonderful floating show palace with all these you know, wonderful light gay shows that are presented and, and, and so much fun for everyone, but it's also a reference to this crop that, you know, represents subjugation and, 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 and tremendously hard work and slavery for all of these other people and how the, um, that those two meanings of that phrase are, are so brilliantly contrasted 
in that opening number in both the lyrics and the music. I, I think that's sheer brilliance. And then, of course, Old Man River, um, which is not only about the working experience, but it, but it is largely about that. Uh, you and me, we set, sweat and strain, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, and I, I think it's fair to say that that remains one of the one of the benchmark songs and one of the most classic songs ever written for the musical theater. So that was um, something that uh, from from the novel by Edna Ferber, and then uh, brilliantly brought to the musical stage in the twenties by Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein, uh, etc. I, I think that's a, a real benchmark. Hmm. Well, Highway 57's calling us home, no matter how far that I roam. Paul Witte brings up Pump Boys and Dinettes. So let's end on that note. Before we get on to trivia, I would like to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts. You can listen to Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, for Jan, and for me can be found in the show notes at Broadway Radio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including Jan's com- comprehensive 36 show plus mm. list, <laughs> a special Labor Day salute to all of us tr- Broadway's truly essential performers. That's in the show notes as well that can be found over Broadway and me. So, Peter, everybody's waiting on the trivia. So what's the answer to last week? In the very same year, she was in two musicals that mentioned the dance with which the nation was obsessed. In the first of the two musicals, she simply mentioned the dance in dialogue in the middle of a song. In the second, she actually sang a whole song about this dance. Who's the performer? What were the songs? And what were the shows? Anita Gillette played characters who were interested in the twist. In early 1962, Gillette played a college student named Susan, who said in her first song, Nightlife, that she wanted to twist until I get arrested. Uh, That apparently didn't happen, for Gillette wasn't in jail in late 1962, but at the St. James Theater instead, where she didn't miss a president. Gillette looked sharp when she took center stage as Leslie Henderson and sang The Washington Twist. Richard Norton was the first to get it, followed by Tony Janicki, Brigadude, Richard Carey, Jack Leshner, Ingrid Gammerman, Anita Gillette, yeah, she mm. knew. <laughs> and Greg Christensen. <laughs> this week's question. Well, we're not having much of a baseball season, but let's ask a baseball-centric question. What musical has a song that celebrates two Hall of Famers, one who played for the Detroit Tigers and the other who worked for the Los Angeles Dodgers? Hmm. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We will let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Jan Simpson, Michael Portantier, and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. In the olden days, a glimpse of stocking was looked on as something shocking. But now God knows anything goes. Good authors, too, who once knew better words, now only use four-letter words. Writing prose, anything goes. The world has 
gone mad today and good's bad today and black's white today and day's night today when most guys today the women prize today are just silly gigolos and though i'm not a great romancer i know that you're bound to answer when i propose anything goes